First today to that visit by the South Korean president to Washington, he was given the full pomp and ceremony treatment by the Americans, with the result being something that will be known as the Washington Declaration. This means South Korea will be more deeply integrated into US strategic planning around deterrence and response to its northern neighbour. There'll be extra display too. For the first time in a generation, US nuclear-armed submarines will be rotated through the peninsula to be clearly seen. Now, it all adds up to a significant and overt strengthening of US defence commitments towards South Korea, ever conscious of the North's growing nuclear capabilities. South Koreans have become very keen on the idea of their own nuclear weapons, which was reportedly concerning the Americans, so there was rather a lot at stake between these allies. Joining me now from Seoul is Dr. Peter Lee from the US Studies Centre and the University of Melbourne's Korean Studies Research Hub. Welcome, Peter. Thanks so much, Geraldine, for having me and greetings from Seoul. Uh, Now, we have, of course, seen now that President Yoon can sing... Um, as in that uh, little uh, grab with President Biden, what importantly was agreed upon uh, in uh, discussing a response to an attack by the North? Yes, I I thought, you know, the the singing was a great way to sort of uh, cap the visit so far. Um, I think it's worth noting that the visit is sort of only the second state visit by a foreign leader to the US under the Biden administration. And so the last was Emmanuel Macron of France um, in November 2022. And so this visit really comes on the 70th anniversary of the Korea-US alliance. Uh, So we recently celebrated our 70th alliance with the United States uh, in 2021. So this is uh, the Korean version. um, And there's, you know, the usual trope of trade visits, investment announcements and so forth. But I think really on the security side, it's as you were just alluding to, the Washington Declaration really about 700 words of very brief text and yet, you know, quite significant in changing how the rock us alliance is dealing with the North Korean nuclear threat, I think. What does it ultimately mean, though? Could the US still launch a nuclear weapon on North Korea without informing Seoul? I mean, the wording says the US, quotes, commits to make every effort to consult. What does that mean? So the key sort of takeaway from the Washington Declaration, at least in my reading, is this establishment of what they call a nuclear consultative group um, that's supposed to meet quarterly um, going forward um, and will be at the assistant secretary level. So in Australia, that would be like a first assistant secretary. Um, So it's really about consultation, um, but it's not about nuclear planning. So the Koreans really aren't involved in that decision. It's ultimately a US um, nuclear weapon that they're making decisions about. Um, So really what the Koreans have been pushing for um, for quite a while um, is to have greater access to that decision-making sort of chain. So this agreement, this declaration is really a first step in that direction. Um, And as you were mentioning, you know, the the more enhanced visibility of US strategic assets, um, long, you know, that the US has provided shows of force after North Korean tests, nuclear tests or missile tests. So, you know, Think about aircraft carriers, long-range bombers that rotate and visit through the Korean Peninsula. Really now we're seeing this new sort of threshold crossed in terms of potentially nuclear-armed ballistic missile submarines and making visits. Um, But in turn, I think the US has tried to tamp down on what they um, are alarmed about in terms of the South Korean discourse around nuclear armament, the perceived weaknesses in US extended nuclear deterrence commitments to South Korea, And really what they wanted to do was include language in that declaration around things like nuclear nonproliferation, that South Korea would 
remained committed to that. And, and are they? Is that, is, that in, is that in there, if I can interrupt you? Did it reaffirm? Yes, yes. Right. So, okay, that's clear, is yes. it? So that, and so that's actually what's led to quite a bit of um, blowback, so we can get into that discussion in a sec, Geraldine. But there, that question of what South Korea has given up um, in terms of this declaration and what it's got out of the United States. So I think there's quite a bit of debate around that. And how do you think the majority of South Koreans will take this? I mean, 70% of them thought that the country should get its own nukes, this self-nuclearisation uh, phrase. Uh, will they like this agreement? So I think it's a really significant effort by the United States to, I think, address and tackle that deep uh, wellspring of, of anxiety within the South Korean public. So as you're mentioning, polls have consistently shown 60 to 70 percent of the South Korean public um, are in favour of it, um, getting their own nuclear weapons or some other version of that, whether that's nuclear sharing with the United States or the redeployment of US tactical nuclear weapons. So whether this announcement, this declaration, resolves all of those anxieties that have led to that, uh, I think it's probably a bit too much to expect um, because that desire for nuclear weapons um, comes from a whole range of sources, um, not simply this idea that it's the US um, guarantee alone that has caused this. So there's a shift, is there, underway by the sound of you, um, quite a deep shift inside the morale in South Korea. And is it a sense of um, sort of agency that they're trying to express, which is quite important, obviously, for the president to convey, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think that's where the president's remarks earlier this year, I think it was in February, where he alluded to the possibility that South Korea may one day have to acquire its own nuclear weapons. That was really a reflection of that you know, groundswell of public sentiment in Seoul. And I think it's because there have been you know, dozens of uh, missile tests by North Korea over the last few years since the breakdown of that last nuclear crisis that we had in 2016, 2017. And so, you know, we've had six nuclear tests. You know, it's widely expected that there'll be another one. And that really, you know, is a reflection of the, the deep uh, insecurity that the South Korean people um, are facing right now. Mm. And that's where I think this question around the U.S. commitment, U.S. reputation, U.S. resolve, you know, that, that at least, you know, in Australia, we've sort of forgotten about it to an extent. But for instance, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan was very widely um, watched very closely in Seoul in terms of what that showed about U.S. commitments to its allies. Mm. So I think, you know, it's a long-running debate and I don't think, you know, one declaration is going to completely resolve that. How have the neighbours, especially North Korea, reacted to this agreement? Presumably they're not happy. Of course they would not be happy. Um, you know, I think in Northeast Asia today, you know, North Korea, China and Russia all have nuclear weapons and South Korea and Japan are really the only ones that don't. So that it's in their interest, obviously, to ensure that this state of play um, and the balance um, of nuclear capability stays as it is. Um, and so they will deeply oppose any moves by South Korea or the United States to shift towards a more robust um, nuclear deterrence posture. And that, you know, the South Korean debate has primarily been around this idea of redeploying US tactical nuclear weapons to the South Korean to the South Korean side of the peninsula since that was withdrawn about 30 years ago. Uh, look, there also was quite an interesting report uh, this week from foreign, the Foreign Policy uh, Group about the amount of hacking that Pyongyang is deploying, an army of hackers 
to, and they put it, bankroll its quest for the bomb. There's this particular group, obviously APT-43, an arm, it's suggested, of um, North Korean intelligence services, and they're incredibly tech-savvy. They're very adept at trawling the web to, as they put it, loot, steal, and most importantly, find ways to advance its nuclear weapons program. Sort of a pretty diabolical combination, actually. Uh, Do you think that'd be well known and understood in South Korea as well? Could this be adding to that sense of um, nervousness? Absolutely. I think it's the latest incarnation of literally a decades-long effort by the North Koreans to finance their nuclear weapons program. And, you know, if you go back to the the late Cold War era, you know, it was literally diplomats carrying bags of cash, you know, selling fake currency, transferring counterfeit goods and drugs and so forth. And now we're really in the digital age of that sanction circumvention, you know, through hacking. And many South Korean institutions and banks have been hacked in the last few years. Um, it just doesn't sort of get international coverage as much as it does. But they've also done that elsewhere in Southeast Asia to sort of finance that effort. So it's becoming increasingly sophisticated, I think, in how they are navigating that sanctions regime. Cybercrime and nuclear aims all at once, goodness. (laughs) What do you think will happen the next time North Korea conducts a missile test, for instance, if we can really get down to tin tacks? I mean, should we expect one in in the coming days? Some people think we should. I, mean, I think it's been widely expected for a, a nuclear test for quite a while, so we're still all still waiting. Um, but, you know, I think there's a, quite a difference. There's a qualitative difference between a missile test, which we've had literally dozens, I think um, over 80 in the last year or two, um, and what a nuclear weapons test would really signify. And I think that is really, you know, where the rubber hits the road in terms of this debate in South Korea, because it's been over almost six years since we had the last nuclear weapons test. Um, and in that time, we had a nuclear crisis. We've had, you know, a period of you know, a deep diplomatic freeze. So that, I think, really reawaken and really shock the system um, in South Korea, but also in the region, in Japan and elsewhere, about the severity of the North Korean nuclear threat, which, for instance, in Australia, it's been quite overshadowed in the last few years, as you can imagine, by other questions like, you know, Ukraine or the Taiwan contingency. I think that would be a, a rude awakening for many people that the North Korean nuclear issue has not gone away um, and that current settings really have not uh, resolved that. Certainly make it makes that vision of uh, President Trump um, trying to liaise with the North Koreans feel just absolutely <laughs> very lush last century, doesn't it? You know, Almost, <laughs> and he might be back in the White, the White <laughs> Who House. Knows? Um, Who knows? Does it all suggest that South Korea and the US have all but abandoned, Peter, any idea of a diplomatic solution with North Korea? Is deterrence the only option on the table now? Yeah, no, I think it's a really important question um, because I would argue that I think the door has always been open, um, that South Koreans and US have not given up seeking dialogue and talks to the North Koreans and that you know, it's the North Koreans that have stopped answering the phone since that sort of, as you were mentioning, the last crisis with Donald Trump and so forth. Uh, it was the North Koreans that blew up the inter-Korean liaison office that sits in the demilitarized zone. So it's sort of, you know, the the place where the South and North were supposed to meet for, you know, defusing tensions. They blew that up two years ago, um, about three years ago, actually. So I think the door is always open. The US still has, you know, negotiators on hand to discuss and have talks with North Koreans. Um, they just haven't responded to any of those entreaties so far. Um, I think in terms of deterrence, um, if that's the only option on the table, I think it's it really it's a question of what the South Koreans and the US are trying to deter. 
And so by that I mean if it's a preemptive North Korean nuclear attack on South Korea or the United States, then we would argue that, yes, deterrence is working and that that's really all that matters. Um, but if it's the idea that we're trying to negotiate a peaceful resolution to the North Korean nuclear crisis, to the North Korean nuclear program, and that, you know, I think in that matter, you know, deterrence is not working that existing settings have not worked and they've not worked for close to 30 years. And so this Washington Declaration is really that sort of a new attempt to rethink how the South Koreans of the United States can really deter North Korea, but also in a more proactive way to sort of mm. reshift those um, ways of thinking about this crisis. Okay. Look, thank you for bringing us up to date. Appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Jared. Dr. Peter K. Lee, a research fellow with the Foreign Policy and Defence Program at the US Studies Centre, University of Sydney. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.